Have you heard? Sling TV offers the news you love for less. Hey, wait, you look and sound just like me. I am you. I'm the same news programs on Sling TV for less. You mean you're me, but for less money? A lot less. I'm all the favorite news programs and more on Sling TV, starting at just $40 a month. Everything great about me, but for less money? Which makes me greater, don't you think? Get the news you love and more for less. Start, Start saving, saving today. today. Visit Sling.com to see your offer. Sling. Price drop. Time to shop. Get to a Nordstrom Rack store today for first dibs on new markdowns. Now score even more, up to 70% off brands everyone loves at Nordstrom Rack. Denim, dresses, sneakers, tops, and more. Plus, get genius deals on jackets, sweaters, and boots for the whole family. Shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and save up to 70% with new markdowns. But hurry, deals this great won't last. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. The year is 2015. And in this tender and emotional movie, we're going to go inside the head of a young girl at... The movie, Inside Out. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Unspooled. <laughs> I'm Amy Nicholson. And I'm Paul Shear. And I forgot how to do the opening. And I'm going to be honest with you, everybody. I didn't know when to come in. I feel like I've never done it before. I don't know what happened. It may be that I'm jet lagged. But I'll tell you this much. Part of my brain isn't working. And that's a good thing. Because today we're going to be talking about how our minds work as we kind of dig into this Pixar classic I'm Paul Shear, joined as always by uh, my friend Amy Nicholson, a, a reviewer who often writes for the New York Times. But Amy, before we get into today's movie, I want to talk about something special. If you've been with us for a long time, you know that we have just come up to our five-year anniversary. Our five-year anniversary. We might be a few weeks late in announcing that, but we wanted to do something really special for everybody who's been with us from the beginning or people who maybe just joined in recently. We want to give you the power of choice. That's right. You are going to get to control Amy and I and pick four films that we are going to do in our five-year anniversary month. Amy, tell them how it's going to go down. Yeah, what's going to happen is in the show notes of this episode and scattered around our various social media groups, you're looking at you, Discord, Twitter, Facebook The group, website. The website, Instagram, all of those, they're going to lead to the same link, which is a Google Doc where you can submit your choice for what film you think we really need to cover. And it could be anything. Don't think of it as being a movie that needs to be on the list. Just think about a, a movie that you want us to cover. It could be a comedy, it could be an action film, it could be anything at all. You get the choice. We're going to pick four of the highest vote getters and then face them off against each other. 
and the winner will be automatically put on the list to go to space with an underlined permanent asterisk where it cannot be taken off. It cannot be taken off the way that we have been known to do in our capricious right. killer wisdom. This is permanent, man. We are going to come back to you. We're going to keep on talking about this because obviously there might not be a consensus of the four movies that we need to do right at the start. So keep on listening. Keep on checking our socials. Get your voice heard because in the spirit of you supporting us for the last five years, we want to give back and support you and your choices. So for the month of July, it is your choices and your movie gets on the list. I can't wait to see how this breaks out. Paul, you know, I must say, five years we've been doing this show, and I don't think you've aged a whisker. Look at you. Uh, neither have you. I think we've gotten better. Have we better, gotten better? Younger, stronger. <gasps> More lustrous in every single way. I think my coat is shinier. <laughs> <laughs> we've gone through a lot. We've gone through a lot, and we'll get through all of this even more. July is your pick. Make sure you check out social media, unspooledpod.com. You could also check out our Discord, discord.gg slash Paul Shear. Uh, you could also check us out on Twitter and on Instagram. All right, now, Amy, let's get to the meat of today's episode. Amy, we have done probably more Pixar than you would like on this show in general, right? You know, there, uh, every Pixar film is worth talking about. I will okay. say that. Oh, wow. Okay, that's interesting. I like that that take. All right. Um, I, I'm a big fan of this movie, but I think what I really love about it is the conversations around it or the way that it takes very complicated ideas and makes them a little bit more digestible to people in general. Well, that is fair. And I think we're about to have a conversation with, a, let's say, a lot of mood swings, because I think this movie really connects and gets so much right about our psyche, including some stuff I see in myself, including some wiring problems of my own that I'm like, hey, why don't we get some technicians in here and figure all of this out? And yet I find this movie very visually horrendous. So I want to wow. talk about all horrendous. of that, the good and the bad. Well, this is a movie that also didn't come together too easy because this is a complicated idea. It's a high concept idea. And how do you tell this story in a way that feels different, but also incredibly relatable. And we kind of will talk about the journey from inception to completion and, and all the different ways that they went about figuring out who these characters are, because there really is no protagonist and antagonist. It, it really is a journey of self-discovery about oneself. I don't know. It's like, it's not a traditional good guy, bad guy story. Oh, Paul, I can't wait to go on a journey with you. Well, good for you that you got a friend who likes to podcast. Who's your friend who likes to podcast? Me, 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 me. Let's unspool it. <laughs> the year is 2015 and Pixar is in an emotional place. 30 years have gone by since its official launch in 1986 under Steve Jobs and John Lasseter. And it's been 20 years since Toy Story made them a new brave, original face of animation. And things were going great all the way up through Wally, -E, up Toy Story 3, but now, not so much. Cars 2, Monsters University, they're kind of just dismissed as weak sequels. Brave had like a whole bunch of problems. The Good Dinosaur was delayed, and critics are beginning to wonder if the soul of Pixar is dead. Now, Steve Jobs is dead, 
And their new picture marks the first time they're telling a story without any of his input. Even Lassiter is distracted by Disney projects, and there are a lot of feelings swirling around while they're struggling to make a movie about feelings. The movie is Inside Out. It's about the inner emotional landscape of an 11-year-old girl. Pete Doctor, one of the directors, got the idea from his own daughter. You can hear him talking about that here. Well, the whole movie was born out of an observation Pete made of his daughter. Around eight, nine, the world was open to her. She could do anything and was interested in everything. And then she started getting a little older. And I see her in the back of the car, like with her head on the window. There's a lot of sighing. There's a lot of kind of drama. And I'm like, where did this come from? What's going on in her head, you know? Your kids grow up and change. And so this is an attempt to sort of capture that and dramatize that from the inside. And Doctor and his co-director, Ronnie Del Carmen, were both pretty traumatized at exactly that age of 11. They can feel what the story is about, but they're having a really hard time articulating it, let alone shaping it into a story, let alone guiding hundreds of animators to create visuals that they can put on screen. So Pete and Ronnie, they make a story, they throw it away, they make a story, they throw it away, they make a story, they throw it away again, and they just keep doing this. We're going to go over some of those scrapped ideas in a bit. What matters now is that after two years of all of this creation and destruction, Doctor has a meeting with Lassiter where he's supposed to finally show him some footage. And Doctor has to tell Lassiter, oh, we're starting over again. That feeling that he is feeling in his chest is fear. Am I going to be fired? But finally, Inside Out settles on a story. Riley, the 11-year-old, has been kept happy most of her life with the emotion of joy voiced by Amy Poehler, who insists to all the other emotions in the brain, anger, fear, disgust, and sadness, that everything is totally awesome. But that cheerleader energy doesn't work when everything in Riley's life is going wrong. Her parents have moved her across the country. She's lost friends. She blew her hockey tryouts. And she cried in front of her new classmates. Joy's attempt to fix Riley pushes her further into depression. And now joy and sadness must journey through Riley's mind to help this girl find peace. Inside Out opened on June 19th, 2015 in, yikes, second place at the box office. That is the first time that a Pixar movie did not open at number one. But it's okay, everybody, relax. It went on to make a ton of money, win an Oscar, and encourage the studio to spelunk even deeper inside the soul and explore death and all sorts of things that make me genuinely wonder if right now Pixar is in a place where is, is there, are they making movies for me or are they making movies for kids? But anyway, what was in the zeitgeist back on opening day? Well, it was a very sad song that sadness would respect. A song that is about looking back on happy memories and wrestling with the pain they bring you now, about leaning on your family. It is a song written about a friend who died and then interpreted as a tribute for a movie about a friend who died. A song that was such a hit the summer of 2015 that we have already heard it once before on the show. It is Wiz Khalifa and Charlie Puth, See You Again, in tribute to Paul Walker. All the planes we flew, good things we've been through. That I'll be standing right here talking to you about another path. I know we love to hit the road and laugh, but something told me that it wouldn't last. Had to switch up, look at things different, see the bigger picture. Those were the days, hard work forever pays. Now I see you in a better place. See you in a better place. Ah. Uh. How can we not talk about family when family's all that we got? Everything I would do, you were standing there by my side. And now you gon' be with me for the last ride. It's been a long day with 
without you, my friend. And I'll tell you all about it when I see you. Uh, and Paul, do you remember when we heard this before? Our Mad Max episode. This was also okay. Fury Road. Okay. What yeah. a great summer. You know, Amy, thinking about Inside Out, and I've watched it a handful of times, actually more now since I have kids. But my original reaction to Inside Out, before I had seen it, just looking at the trailers, I was coming in with this same idea of like, I don't know, Pixar, is it good anymore? And I was like, oh, they're just doing Herman's Head. Remember Herman's Head? I do remember Herman's Head. Okay, Herman's Head was like this American sitcom that aired on Fox in 1991 for three years, all right? And it has a great cast. It was like uh, Hank Azaria, Yeardley Smith, Basically, it's it's a guy who we've cut into his head. I mean, there's a lot of these shows at this point where we were going into people's brains. Remember Dream On? Like Dream On, Brian Benben. It was an HBO show where he would uh, think in like classic sitcoms. So it was like he would cut into like old black and white movies and sitcoms that would kind of underline what he was feeling. Well, I always think of this one. I think it was at the time when I saw it as a very, very small child, the sitcom that was on air for the shortest number of episodes ever. It was where the principal from Ferris Bueller, he went into fantasy worlds and he saw all of his like stuffed mounted heads in his home talking to him. Does this sound familiar to you at all? No, not at all. It was the people next door. It was the people next door. That was the name of it. I think they showed five episodes and canceled it. But when I was a little kid, I was like, whoa, things come into life. Imaginations being alive. Wes Craven, weirdly, wrote on the show. Amazing. I think he created it too. But, you know, Herman's Head and Dream On, they were successful shows. And I think we always are wrestling with how do we get inside our own mind? I think books do it so well. You get to really understand the inner monologue. But where I think these shows kind of failed were that they were always focused on a middle-aged white dude, right? And they often were like, oh, yeah, we see the guy who wants to just have sex, right? Like, you know, like that like that was an energy of horniness in the brain. And then like the smart one going, well, hold on. Do you like this girl? Right, like the angel and devil thing popping on exactly. your shoulder. Or, or even kind of like how the parents are here in Inside Out, where it's like, oh, yeah, women are like this, but men are like this. Something is definitely going on. She's never acted like this before. What should we do? We're going to find out what's happening, but we'll need support. Signal the husband. Ahem. Uh-oh, she's looking at us. Uh, what did she say? What? Oh, oh, sorry, sir. No one was listening. Is it garbage night? Uh, we left the toilet seat up. What? What is it, woman? What? <sighs> He's making that stupid face again. I could strangle him right now. Signal him again. Ah, so, Riley, how was school? Are oh, oh, you kidding me? For this, we gave up that Brazilian helicopter pilot? And it becomes this like weird stereotype thing where we just kind of feed into the most base instincts of what men and women want. Again, another movie, what uh, what women want, where he can hear a woman's thoughts. You know, it's like this idea. <laughs> we're constantly like obsessed with how to get inside someone else's head. But the real head, I think, to get inside of is the head of a kid or a teen, which this one really picks an interesting point in the life of a kid. It's like when they stop being a child and start becoming like a teen, like this beginning of the end of innocence. 
Yeah, and it's funny because I think at some moments this movie is still really reductive. Like when you go inside the head of a teenage boy, even it's just right. nonsense. Sorry. Bye. It essentially like the brain of a teenage boy is not that different than when Pixar was like, let's go inside the brain of a dog and a dog's just going to go squirrel, <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, but that said, like when you go inside one person's brain in this with a lot of depth, which is 11 year old Riley, I think they find a ton of wrinkles and probably just because it took them so long to even figure out what you're going to see when you go inside the brain. And now that we're talking about all of this brainness, I'm realizing maybe the pull of movies about going inside a brain is that there is no character in our lives that we spend more time talking to than a, right. a brain. All I do all day long is talk to my own brain. Sometimes I disagree with it. Sometimes it tells me things I like. I mean, do you talk to your brain constantly? Absolutely. There's always this train of thought, uh, which is in the film, going on at all times. It's this battle of all the parts that make up you. And I think that this movie does a really great job of simplifying how complex everything is, right? Because we have this idea of a control panel and different emotions take control of the panel. And at this point, the control panel in the beginning of the film is pretty simple, right? The emotions don't really work together as much as they are separate entities that each one kind of pass the baton off to each other. And life as you get older gets a little bit more complex and not everything is so black and white. Or yellow and blue. Or green. <laughs> or red. I mean, we're here inside the brain of Riley from the very beginning. From the very beginning that like Joy, our first character, the Amy Poehler one, kind of seizes the very first button that exists in this baby's brain and the baby has her first emotion. It was amazing. Just Riley and me forever. Oh, for 33 seconds. I'm sadness. Oh, hello. I, I'm Joy. So, can I just, if you could, I just want to fix that. <laughs> Thanks. And that was just the beginning. Headquarters only got more crowded from there. And then an interesting thing happens, because to me, Inside Out is a movie that I'll just say up front. I thought was, okay, when I watched it the first time, I had some issues that we're definitely going to get into. And then the second time I watched it, I'll just be honest, I started therapy. And so I was like, wow. oh, this movie is suddenly a lot deeper uh, to be when I rewatched it. Because like what this movie is struggling with in the mind of an 11-year-old girl is what I'm struggling with as a grown-up, which is right. I like to put joy at, at the controls of how I work. And if my brain is not always pushing the buttons that are joy and spinning ways to find out happiness and spinning ways to keep me like afloat and everything's great and everything's wonderful and this world is magical and why would I ever be sad? Then uh, that's that's basically how I want my brain to work. And what I've been trying to like figure out lately is, is it okay to be sad? Which is a very right. late in life thing for me to kind of be wrestling with. But having that on my mind and rewatching this movie and then hearing joy Talk about sadness like this. And you've met sadness. She, well, she. <laughs> I'm not actually sure what she does. And I've checked. There's no place for her to go. So she's good. We're good. It's all great. 
this movie actually cracked open for me in a way that I wasn't really appreciating the first time. Because now I was watching this entire movie where, you know, this caper with joy and sadness. I'm thinking, oh, Joy's kind of the villain. Joy's kind yeah. of like, she's a zealot. She's a pathological zealot of happiness. And, you know, she's almost almost in a way that I didn't register the first time I watched it because this type of character. We got it. I got this. We can do this. We're upbeat. That is a character we see a lot in movies. You know, like the positive, cheerful, let's do it all, you know, character that it almost didn't register how cranked up she was in in her zealotry about being happiness. That she's almost just this like this exaggeration of an American style Hollywood hero to the point of being like annoying and pressing. And and here I was like actually really able to concentrate more and watching how Joy bullies the other emotions around and like suffocates their own ability to express how they're feeling. Well, I think one of the most powerful moments in this movie is Joy listening, realizing that there are certain things she can't fix. Joy is suffocating everyone around her because she doesn't listen and she doesn't see the value in anything but happiness. And where that's really challenged for her is this moment where she has to be with Bing Bong and Bing Bong basically is like, my life is over. I'm sorry they took your rocket. They took something that you loved. It's gone. Forever. Sadness. Don't make him feel worse. Sorry. It's all I had left of Riley. I bet you and Riley had great adventures. Oh, they were wonderful. Once we flew back in time, we had breakfast twice that day. Sadness! It sounds amazing. I bet Riley liked it. Oh, she did. We were best friends. (laughs) Yeah, it's sad. I'm okay now. Come on. The train station is this way. That moment is something I think culturally we've been talking about a lot. The idea of active listening. Like, you're not putting your own emotions, your own feelings in front of anything. You simply are just letting someone share with you. And I think as a culture, or at least the stereotype that you get of men is that men want to solve a problem right away, you know, and and women, I think are better at listening to other uh, friends or people in their lives, talk about what's going on and not try to fix it, but just hear. And I think that's something that we all wrestle with. And that's to me, the biggest sign of growth is her realizing that like, she doesn't have to fix everything and everything doesn't have to be perfect. And that's even a bigger scale issue beyond just joy. It's just like sometimes the best you can be is just there, physically there, open ears there for someone. And I relate to that a lot because I definitely have a, a fix-it personality. Like when things are going wrong for my friends, it is so much easier for me to be like, I'll get bagels. You know, like that's yeah. like that's kind of the niche where I want to be. Or it's where I'm, it's where I gravitate towards being the like, what can I do that's active? Can I do your laundry? Like I'd rather, I'd almost rather do laundry than, than not know what to do. Sometimes the only thing you can do is just be there, sit in silence. And that's hard. I think it's hard for me to feel powerless when you see somebody that you love or care about 
is going through something hard and, and the best thing to do is just be, just be, show up. And I think I'm still kind of trying to consciously learn every single day that joy is not supposed to be necessarily your default emotion, that everything that deviates from joy is a mistake. And I feel like it's a weird moment that we're kind of like in this strange transitional moment of talking about like mental wellness, because on the one hand, we are having these conversations about like how to acknowledge sadness, how to be better partners to people. But at the other side of the thing, I still find it's kind of hard to talk about painful, weird, vulnerable stuff because everybody still wants to be like, you've got this. Or if you're thinking positive, it'll be all right. Or I feel like we're living in kind of a strange era of counterproductive positivity sometimes that makes it hard to be vulnerable. Oh, absolutely. But I think those people are joy people. You know, I guess what I'm seeing a lot more of is people accepting you just can't pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You just can't change on a dime. I think this goes to something else that I have kind of, you know, wrestled with for a long time, which is like apologies, right? Because apologies are hard when you hurt somebody that you love and you didn't mean to hurt someone that you love. You know, there's an instinct of being like, oh, I didn't mean it that way. So you shouldn't feel that way. But damage are done. You do feel that way. I may not have intended that, but I have to sit with that. I have to sit with you being uncomfortable or you being upset with me. And different people react in different ways. And it's great to have that conversation of, okay, I can now see your point of view. I understand that you didn't mean it the way that I took it, but it doesn't like erase an emotional response. And I think that as anyone who is, you know, dealt with grief or sat next to grief can tell you, like, there's nothing you can do to make it better. You know, maybe you distract, but it's not, you're never going to forget. Like I saw this show, one man show. There's a book uh, that this guy wrote as well. His name is Colin Campbell. He's a writer. Um, and he lost both of his kids in a car accident a couple of years ago. And he was talking about this energy that people have when they're around him. They don't want to talk about their kids, nor do they want to talk about his kids as if if you bring up his kids, he'll be like, oh my God, I totally forgot that I had two kids that died. Uh, you reminded me, now I'm upset again, right? Like he lives with this grief. And I think that like sometimes people don't know how to handle that sometimes there just are things you can't fix and you can't make better, just like Bing Bong and Joy. She can't bring Bing Bong back. Bing Bong's gone, baby. It's Bing Bong town, Jake. Have you heard? Sling TV offers the news you love for less. Hey, wait, you look and sound just like me. I am you. I'm the same news programs on Sling TV for less. You mean you're me, but for less money? A lot less. I'm all the favorite news programs and more on Sling TV, starting at just $40 a month. Everything great about me, but for less money? Which makes me greater, don't you think? Get the news you love and more for less. Start saving today. Visit Sling.com to see your offer. Sling. Hop, hop, hooray. Nordstrom Rack's got sweet deals on everything Easter, which is Sunday, March 31st. Get to Nordstrom Rack now and save on Kate Spade, New York, Two-Faced, Steve Madden, Calvin Klein, and more from just $30. 
Score great brands and great prices on Easter looks for everyone, plus spring decor, gifts, and all kinds of deliciousness. Rack up the deals today at your Nordstrom Rack Store. What will you find? Can I just say, whenever Bing Bong sacrifices himself in this movie, as much as I do roll my eyes at much of this movie, that moment I started crying again. I was so annoyed. This one right here. Woo! Bing Bong! We did it! We... Bing Bong? Bing Bong! Yeah! You made it! Go! Go save Riley! Take her to the moon for me. Okay? Wait, I don't even know why I had to say that I was annoyed to be sad. Look at me. I'm doing it again. I was no, sad but, and it was fun. But, but by the way, <laughs> what is anything without peaks and valleys, right? It's you can have a great day at work and a horrible day at home. You can have, you know, something happen to you that sets you back. But then a couple months later, you go way forward. The, life is all about these ups and downs. The failures make you stronger in your successes. And for whatever reason, we sort of equate emotions as being good or bad. Is anger bad? Well, certain anger to certain people is bad, but other times it's not. Anger is something that actually can protect you in multiple ways. You know, is sadness bad? I think this movie kind of shows you the beauty of bittersweet. Like every emotion can kind of be wrapped together. I, I have moments when I'm laying in bed with my kids where I'm like, I'm so happy I'm with my kid and this is the best. And then I'm immediately sad. Like this is going to be ending soon. Like mm -hmm. they're not going to want to do this anymore. Oh my God. Oh God. And then I'm like, and I got out of that emotion and you're constantly riding these waves. I do think it's something that I've gotten better at emotionally after having kids, after being married, like you're constantly involved in other people's emotions when you're so caught up in it. I always tell people never get married to anyone unless you've been with them for a year, because I think a full year lets you see where their emotional state is, right? Like, cause it's like, you can hide it for a little bit, but after you can't hide it for a year, you can't hide the full you for a year. I think everything that you're saying is stuff that like has been stuff. I've been really consciously thinking about lately. Like somebody told me the ther therapist told them to start thanking anger when it shows up, to start seeing anger as something that's trying to protect you from a pain that you don't want to feel. And that when anger flares up, instead of feeling like angry that you're angry or sad that you're sad, which is something I get a lot, like, oh, no, I'm sad. I'm so sad that I'm sad. How dare I be sad? And then I get even sadder. To, to take that emotion out and just sort of look at it and say, like, I see what you're doing in my chest right now, and I appreciate it. I appreciate what you're trying to do, and I need you to know that I've got this, and it's okay. You know, one of the people I've been listening to a lot lately, and I'm almost nervous because now I'm feeling I'm sort of up in my own head about feeling I'm going to sound all like hippy dippy, but I've been listening a lot to this guy Ram Das. Oh yeah, you know, some of what he says goes more into like you know traditional spirituality than like I is how I feel about things, but he talks a lot about like examining your own emotions and as sort of uh, individual feelings and looking at them with this kind of affectionate distance, like, like here. What one cultivates um, is a spaciousness or an awareness that allows you to acknowledge the feelings and allow them and see them as part of the 
human condition. They're all generated. They're like thought, they're subtle thought forms. Emotions are really subtle thought forms. They're all part of a lawful, reactive domain that you get, you keep cultivating a quietness in yourself that just watches these things coming and going and arising and passing away. And you, you learn not to um, act out your emotions, but just to appreciate and allow them. And actually, he said something that I listened to the other day where he was like, you know, I have spent years of my life in, as like studying therapy, you know, meditating in caves, essentially, like thinking about all sorts of emotional, spiritual quests. And he's like, and after all of this, I still have all of the same neuroses I had at the beginning. They're just my friends now. And I see them for, you know, I can line them all up. I can name them. They're smaller. They're my neuroses. And they don't ever go away. They're just a part of me. And that that acceptance even of like the nagging things in your head is like, well, there you are. You're just doing what you do. That's what you are. You're annoyed by this and disgusted by this and to not label it as wrong. Absolutely. Look, I definitely dealt with anger and holding back anger because I felt like I couldn't like figure out the valve for it. I think that recognizing sad moments in your life or dealing with these little moments, these reasons when we go down, it's good to examine them, get into them and figure out how to get back up. But also enjoy the down as well. Like let yourself go there and understand that like part of the down is sometimes like this movie shows about rebuilding a piece of who you are. And that piece can come back and be stronger uh, or that piece can come back and be completely different. You know, whether you have a breakup that destroys your relationship island, but builds back an island that's a little bit more confident or a little bit, you know, less um, codependent, that's a good thing. You know, so I think we're constantly living in a world where we are morphing our islands of personality. This, these like these core memories are changing what we are. And there's something really sad in this movie when you see her islands crashing. Because you're like, oh no, her personality is going away. But what we're actually witnessing is the strength. We need those islands to die for her to come back. And they do come back and they're stronger. And then she's stronger. We often get ourselves so stuck in a trap of trying to be like you were or being mad at yourself that you're not this way without acknowledging that growth is continually molding who we are. And this is the first moment where like a kid starts to become more than what their parents have imprinted on them. Like she doesn't have to go back to goofball Island. Goofball Island can be a part of another Island now, but it doesn't, you know, she is starting to build her own new islands. I think that that that's, what's so cool about this movie is it kind of embraces the growth that we make. It's not about always being the same. It's really about finding out who we are and that could change week to week. One of the kind of points in this movie that really jumped out at me this time is this idea of your parents guiding who you think you should be. You, we don't spend a ton of time with this family as a family, really. But in the glimpses that we see, you know, we know, well, okay, one, that her dad is like, I don't know, so maybe he's like a, a, a tech bro of some sort. They've moved to San yeah. Francisco. He's getting investors. It's going very poorly. He's on the phone kind of muttering about layoffs. What can we do? We've only got capital to last a month, maybe two. If we can't find investors by then, we're going to have to lay people off. Mom, Dad, come kiss me goodnight. I know, Be I right know. there. We've got to land this, okay? I mean, the things that the dad is talking about sound very specific. I guess they sound like a lot of people that the people of Pixar know. Tech people in the city, angry about things, needing 
financing and everything always being on the cusp of disaster. Probably very relatable if you work at Pixar. Um, But beyond that, we get this scene with her and her mom where her mom says this. I guess all I really want to say is thank you. Huh? You know, through all this confusion, you've stayed, well, you've stayed our happy girl. Your dad's under a lot of pressure. But if you and I can keep smiling, it would be a big help. We can do that for him, right? Whoa. Well. Yeah, sure. What did we do to deserve you? I have to say, that scene scared me when I watched it this time. Because I felt like I could really see the formation of a young woman who might be being trained a little bit to sublimate her own feelings for the sake of everyone else. You know, she is sad and unhappy that she's living in this town and she's being kind of trained by her mother to be happy on behalf of somebody else. And that's a lot of psychological training that can take a very long time to undo. But it's also like, yeah, it's not acknowledging that kids also have a feelings. I mean, one of the things we do with our kids all the time, and I, I think it's just from our own individual work that we've done on each other is like, we always are asking them. It's like, we tell them it's okay to be sad. It's okay to be angry right now, but how are we going to be angry? Like when my oldest gets angry, sometimes he'll like hit his brother. I'm like, that's not okay. You can be mad at him. You can say these things to him. You just can't use your fists on your brother because you want something different. But I feel like parents often put this weight on themselves. Like if my kid's unhappy, I've done something wrong. And that's their own voice, like kind of creating this thing. It's like, if I keep my kid happy, then life is good. And like, and I think the sooner you realize that your kid's going to be miserable, they are, we've all went to high school. We all know what that's like. We all, we like, you know, it's like, you have nothing to do with it. They're going to become their own person. And the more you can embrace it and allow people to start talking about their emotions in a way that kind of destigmatizes them, the better off we are. And I feel like that's why I'm so excited about the NBA talking about mental health and wellness. Oh, yeah. You know, I think this idea. Of, I love that Meta World Peace has actually kind of stepped up and taken some of that on. Yeah. I mean, so many people have. Even, you know, like we saw it like with Paul George in the bubble, like he had these worst games he ever had because he's incredibly depressed. I think a lot of those guys in the NBA bubble were incredibly depressed because they were away from their family. And it's like, but you can't look depressed. And even so, with all of that, like, I think it's interesting that when Riley goes on this whole journey and, you know, comes to a point where her brain is allowing her, I guess her mind, Pixar's really tried to be like, this is not about the brain. It's not brain. It's mind. Although I also want to say those weird looking labyrinthine pink brown things she's got, those sure look like brains to me. Uh, but um, what she says to her parents, I mean, we'll listen to this. You need me to be happy. And my hockey team. I want to go home. Please don't be mad. Yeah, that she is worried if she's not happy, they'll be angry. That she's like also trying to monitor, modulate, control their emotions in a way that honestly, I think she's pretty perceptive because, you know, when we go inside the parents' brains and they're like all yelling at each other and blah, 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 blah. What you see when you look at the dad's brain is that the person in command of the dad's brain is anger. Anger is the one calling the shots. And when you really look at his dad's brain, the joy part of his dad's brain is way at the end of the table, doesn't really get to say or do anything. 
And then when you look at the mom's brain, the mom's brain is ruled by sadness. It's sadness at the corner of mom's brain being like, here's what's going on. In a way, I found that sort of depressing. Like, is the movie kind of saying the older you get, the less joy even has an important spot at your table? Because I think I do still want to deep down be like ruled by joy. But but oh. I think it's sort of I think it's it's about like this mix and match of everything. You know, I think it's what I what I saw there was not that sadness is running the table, but all the emotions are equally at the table. Oh, really? Because I feel like sadness does most of the talking for the mom and anger does almost all of the talking for the dad. It's interesting. I think that also we're seeing a very unique moment. And if you were to pinpoint other moments in this film, you know, when anger or disgust was at the control, it's really just for jokes. Like they're popping in jokes there, but I do feel like we, you could see a moment in her brain that was led just by disgust or, you know, whether it's the pizza or whatever they, you know, they were not working fully together at at that point too. I don't know. Honestly, if I'm going to like poke a hole in this movie, I'll say that they went for a joke there and they didn't really go to show you anything more. They did the, the Herman's head dream on moment there. Those are cutaways just to tag jokes in my mind. You know, it's like, oh, the husband's not paying attention. Why wouldn't the husband be paying attention? He's thinking about like nothing. His kid's like clearly depressed. Like he doesn't yeah. seem like a checked out dad, but that's a joke. Yeah. It feels like he should be thinking about his failing company, if anything, not football. It just feels off target for the characters. I love the parents in this. I understand that the parents are caught up in their own shit. The moving truck's not there. They're moving to a new city. Oh, this house kind of sucks. Like, and the kid's getting a little bit uh, pushed to the side. But that's why I think this movie works really well. Because you and I could sit here and talk about our own emotions and how we wrestle with joy and anger and fear and disgust. But that's the adult takeaway from this movie. Kids can watch this movie and go, oh my gosh, the dad is thinking about football. That's funny. I get it. Oh my gosh, they're on a train. The train crashed. This movie is also a straight up animated, fun adventure movie that I think there are questionable things going on. It's like, okay, yes, train of thought, but that's not connected to emotions. Okay, but how does that necessarily work? Like, you know, like there are some things. And then it crashes while she's awake. And I'm like, does she stop? thinking well that's it like yeah there are things that just don't add up or like even when they're on the train taking that tour i'm like okay this is a joke and also this is just cerebral sounding nonsense how about this huh and this nice you can see everything from up here look there's inductive reasoning there's deja vu there's language processing there's deja vu there's critical thinking there's deja vu hey look at this guy's memories That's a perfect example. That's a good joke. That's a hilarious joke. There are some funny visual big things, but I really think at the root of it, it is about emotions and balancing all your emotions and all the extra stuff, all the different lands they go to and all the characters they run into or just keeping one thing. I mean, I love that idea of like your mind is like, okay, we'll keep the information about the fat president and we'll remember (laughs) this one thing and the double mint gum. Like, I love that. Oh, I love that scene. We got to hear that right now. Phone numbers. Oh, we don't need all these. They're in her phone. Just forget Excuse all of that, please. Hi. Forget it. I need to find Friendship this. Island. Four years of piano lessons. Yeah, it looks pretty faded. You know what? Save chopsticks and heart and soul. Get rid of the rest. Are you? U.S. presidents. What do you think? Yeah, just keep Washington, Lincoln, and the fab one. Forget them. Hey. 
You can't throw those away. Those are perfectly good memories. The names of every cutie pie princess doll. Yes, that is critical information. Glitterstorm, honey pants, and Forget up! You know the gag that actually gets me where I'm like, okay, gag, what is your point? Is um, in the credits when they suddenly like, let's go see what everybody else's brain is up to when it's closing. And they go inside the brain of the teacher. How much more of this? Five months, two weeks, and four days until summer vacation. Then it's off to the Bahamas with you know who. Come, fly with me, Gachinha. <sighs> Are you telling me in this universe that the teacher also dated the Brazilian helicopter pilot and that Riley's teacher and her mom have the same ex-boyfriend? Because that's what I'm thinking now. Like, what? Uh, or are there just like a million Brazilian helicopter pilots? I mean, I dated one Brazilian. I kind of get it. But like not a helicopter pilot. There can't be that many helicopter pilots. (laughs) There's got to be a lot. Uh, How do you get around Brazil? Uh, But there (laughs) there is. I met mine in the rainforest. (laughs) Very hard to get to. See, there you go. Have you heard? Sling TV offers the news you love for less. Hey, wait. You look and sound just like me. I am you. I'm the same news programs on Sling TV for less. You mean you're me, but for less money. A lot less. I'm all the favorite news programs and more on Sling TV starting at just $40 a month. Everything great about me, but for less money? Which makes me greater, don't you think? Get the news you love and more for less. Start saving today. Visit Sling.com to see your offer. Sling. Rack your look for spring at Nordstrom Rack and save up to 60% on brands you love. Rag & Bone, Vince, Marc Jacobs, Adidas, Joes, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. Score new dresses, denim, sandals, designer bags, and sunglasses, plus updates for the family and home. Get your spring on for less, up to 60% less today at your Nordstrom Rack store. What will you find? So I guess what I really like about this movie is it's incredibly imaginative. It doesn't always perfectly work. Like, I love that they got to go to the Dream Factory, you know, and that's such a funny idea. And and they get to see, you know, how, you know, the dreams are made. And I can understand how on a first watch, that stuff can kind of feel like a little bit useless. I think when I was watching it the first time, the story starts to run out of steam a little bit, right? There's like a point where you're like, okay. And we're just like on this adventure, this like road trip with these two, you know, we're on a buddy road trip. It's, you know, sadness and joy. And they're, and they're going on this little adventure. And there's a part where it just feels like there's not enough twists and turns in the actual story. Right. Because the dynamic between them isn't in a way, I appreciate that. It's not the traditional, like one is good and one is bad. Bad. No, yeah. But sadness is just sort of existing in her bubble. She's not really Well, she's being forced this... to stand in a circle, you know? Yeah, yeah. But it's like, there is no protagonist-antagonist in here. It's just sort of the two of them bumping along until you sort of are starting to wonder if, like, Joy is the antagonist. But I don't actually like this movie very much. I just love the idea of it. Like, I really like the idea of it. But I find the movie itself, its execution, its style... I find it so noisy and so chattery that I have to concentrate so hard to like have what it's saying register to me. It operates like all in kind of like a surface level where I felt like Labyrinth, which we did last week, 
operates so much on the subconscious level of a young girl that it really hit me the feeling of being inside a young girl's subconscious. Here it feels very like surfacey ideas floating on the top and I don't feel it in my gut. And also I just want to say, I think this film is very ugly. For a Pixar oh, movie, wow. I think it's probably the ugliest modern Pixar movie, even uglier than Cars 2, which I think Cars 2 has some pretty scenes. Cars 2 can definitely get some beautiful, like, big landscape shots mm-hmm. that are always really gorgeous. I don't disagree with you. I was looking at the characters. And I was like, oh, these characters are interesting. They kind of have, like, Muppet skin, you know, kind of like puppety yeah. kind of, uh, like, felty skin. And their hair looks like cheap Pencil, TV static. I don't understand the texture of the hair at all. But I love the world and how beautiful the world is and how complex the world is. And I love Bing Bong and these other, you know, memory keepers that we showed. There's a lot of really great ideas here. I think Labyrinth is also a movie about a girl lost and on a quest and literally going from place to place to place. This is a movie about the similar quest is going through a complicated world, trying to get back. Discovering new emotions, but almost from like the other point of view where, where in Labyrinth, Jennifer Connelly is realizing she has to get rid of all of her toys. And you're like, yeah, get rid of those toys. Here, you're just sort of on the side of Bing Bong. Like, oh, well, I can but, understand why you don't want to get rid of them. But there's also this element, right, where the journey isn't a part of the growth. And I think that's the problem with this movie. We're going through all these obstacles that aren't really affecting the characters. It really is just the conversation between the three. And I think that's why the movie feels like it runs out of steam. Because you could put all these characters in a room together and ultimately have probably the same outcome. Whereas in Labyrinth, I think that there are more complex ideas and she's learning from these characters these characters are pushing her and the journey is changing her a little bit you know there's a really good documentary on youtube you can watch of like the pixar team assembling this movie and how hard Mm -hmm. it was you know they talk a lot about like how are we going to even come up with a conception of what the inside of a mind looks like and all the drafts they came up with we had about 10 to 13 distinctly different concepts of what the mind would look like at one point her entire mind was kind of an interior of a building. Another point, it was just an island. Um, now we're playing around with it being multiple islands. We had music land and math land and, and cognitive world. Fields of ideas we had. I think these are idea fields. This map has changed multiple times. We've had 50 islands, we've had five islands, we've had different types of pillars, all sorts of stuff. This is the simplest map we've, we've had so far, which is great. I mean, at one point, they even went to an egg farm to try to get inspiration for how memories are created and stored. We thought there's probably some automated system by which the memories go on some sort of conveyor belts or tracks and are sorted somehow, and the team visited an egg sorting place. We are here to actually look at egg production, just to think of them like memories. The egg farm was really all about sorting, how to sort a memory. But, you know, despite all of that, I really don't care that much about the layout they came up with. I find it kind of weird and cluttered and ugly, and I don't feel a sense of movement. And it's I don't love that you show up in the brain, you're over here in kind of the, like, I don't know. To me, it just looks like a gigantic bowling ball storage alley. And and then you kind of, like, go from there, and you're pole voting on French fries, and you see the pit. And the geography of it, mentally, 
I just find really kind of scattered and disorganized. You go through it all once, no matter where you go, those big memory balls are right there again. You're running back through it again twice. Like it just, I don't feel any sort of interior logic to it. It just feels like, and now we're here and now we're here and now we're here. But I think why this movie, you know, gets nominated and wins an Oscar for best animated film, right? Is because it touches on a core emotional issue that we have. This movie will make you cry. Like, for example, I don't know if I love Up, but I love the first 15 minutes of Up. I mean, and there's some beautiful things in Up and it's a beautiful movie. And that's a movie about like, you know, learning to live with loss and there's so much in there. But I think when you think of Up, you're probably thinking about that first 15 minutes. I think you're thinking less about the dogs who can talk. And when you think about this movie, you're thinking about the conversation that we had that kicked off this podcast. And that may be the best part of Pixar movies is that they are movies that you can chew on on the way home and they bring up a larger philosophical issue. And while they may not be a perfect film, they are ideas perfectly articulated. I'll even go to soul and this idea of never getting your break and feeling you don't have it. And like this idea of like life ending before you get that thing and, 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 and that feeling that you missed out, like that's a complex fucking idea. It's a depressing idea. It's something that we can all really relate to. I think that this movie does show what you were saying at the beginning of the episode. I'd almost say this is a rare example of the idea being so delicious that we're just, we're on board. We're just on board with it. You know, whereas something like defending your life has not similar themes, but it's like it does a similar idea. Like it goes into a different world and it shows you how, you know, this idea, like this more ethereal world of like heaven works. And I love that movie. I love that movie so much. I think that that maybe is a better movie, but. I mean, I'm always going to be on the side of a film that takes a girl's inner landscape seriously. Right. You know, it says like a young girl's imagination is worth exploring in this much depth. And like the range of how they even considered exploring it in some of the drafts, there sometimes the emotional journey they were thinking she was going to go on was like, Riley wants to be in a Thanksgiving pageant. Sometimes she was going to be in a coma. They tried that one. Oh God! Once they thought like the emotional arc was just she was going to try to buy a bag of potato chips. I don't know how that worked out. They just sort of made a reference. It was lime potato chips. Like what? But the idea of saying everything that happens in this little girl's brain is important enough to make a movie about. Very much in alignment with that, because I think a lot of times the inner landscape of a female character gets overlooked. You've heard me go on the rant a million times about how I feel that if there is a genre of movie that gets so just immediately, you know, like 15 points are going to be erased from its Rotten Tomato score. It's a movie about female friendship because there are a lot of critics that do not understand the importance of a movie about female friendship. Uh, You know, and, and so this just as a given is like, that is important. And. I do think that they are correct in this idea of like setting the movie at age 11. I mean, they talked to a lot of like neuropsychologists, neurobiologists in making this movie. And they did find that like studies say that the number of the positive emotions that a person feels drops steeply when somebody hits age 11. That 11 is when your inner landscape really shifts. I mean, this is true for Pete Doctor. Like he said that when he was in the fifth grade, his parents moved their family to Denmark for a year. And Doctor was already like this very shy geek. Like he was the kind of kid who went to the Enchanted Tiki Room, loved it so much. He came to his house and built his own Tiki Room in his bedroom. He was not a normal kid. You can imagine 
that he was picked on even when he was in America and then going to Denmark, he felt just like such a misfit. So being 11 was, you know, really traumatic for him. It was the same thing with Del Carmen. Like when he was 11, his dad lost all of the family's money. And he went from, you know, growing up in like kind of a middle class life to becoming very, very poor. He said that he barely even got to grow up and finish high school. You know, that all of his friends went to college. He had to go straight to work because he just his family just didn't have money. And so 11 was also like a huge turning point for him. I hated being 11. I think I actually just hated being a child in general. Like, I think if you said, good luck, you can go back to childhood. I'd be like, please, no. This is a conversation my boyfriend and I have all the time. My boyfriend loved being a kid. And I'm like, I would sooner die. Don't make me be any age of being a child again. Do not want to do that. No, I get that. I mean, look, I don't I don't want to go back. I don't like going back. What happens in this movie is the way that I live my life. It's like, yeah, those islands fall down to build new islands. And you may miss those islands, but you are a new person. It's like it I look back on my life and I'm so happy for the most traumatic moments and the best moments, but they've all like changed me. I don't want to be the same person. I don't want to go back when it was easier because going back when it was easier and now being this age and this emotionally mature, I'm sure I'd feel so stifled there. It's like, oh, this is gross. I don't want to be there. All I remember about being a kid is the feeling of being powerless. Yeah. Not that my parents were bullying at all. They gave me all the freedom in the world, but just being like, can't do anything. Can't drive anywhere. If we're home, I'm stuck at home, man. I hated it. Well, I think that what you what people want to do is they want to game the system. Like, I want to get joy. Like, if I know how to, like, I don't care what people think of me in class. It's like, well, yeah, but you only don't care what people think of you in class because you've lived through it, right? It's like you want to game the system. It's like, yeah, I want to take that test again once I know all the answers. It's like, well, yeah, but then that <laughs> defeats the purpose of, like, you. <laughs> that's not the way you do it. Like, um, but I think that this movie picked a great moment to expose it's like it's the moment when life comes in and i think that most kids not all but most kids are kind of shielded from the realities of the world until about 11 and then all of a sudden you go like oh my parents they're not that great or they done they can make mistakes or oh i can't get out of this i have no friends in school i i I have no choice like all of a sudden, I think you start to just see the world. It's like your eyes open for the first time. I think that there's a reason why, you know, we start with this movie with the eyes opening the first time. And this is the second time where the eyes are opening and all these new core memories are creating her new worldview because she's no longer a kid. I, I think that that's it's such a beautiful, I, I love it. I mean, I love this movie. I find myself feeling like at the hour and 10 mark like okay let's go mm-hmm. like it just gets a little like i think they did a very good job for something as heady as this and they have to kind of create the kid movie too and the kid movie i think plays well my kids love it i don't think they walk away with any of these thoughts oh your kids do love it i was gonna ask yeah. you that yeah yeah i mean i will say when you see the flashbacks of her skating as a child i love that i cannot skate worth anything but for some reason i am a sucker for watching animated little girls skate. I find it very sad. I like the thing that I immediately think of when I see her skate in here is this episode of Schoolhouse Rock, where it's about like a girl figure skating and talking about the number eight. And it makes me so sad. I think it is the most beautiful song that Schoolhouse Rock ever did. If you skate, you would be great. If you could make a figure eight. 
that is beautiful. And I think maybe just in the deep, dark corner of my heart, I put some of that feeling onto this movie and onto those ice skating scenes as well. But then I want to say, like, design-wise, do you know what the one thing that just absolutely drives me nuts about this movie? It is Joy's hair. And not just the texture of it, which Uh-oh. I've already cracked about. I just don't understand why her hair is blue. Because to me, blue is a hint about maybe where the movie's going, that Joy should coexist okay. with sadness and embrace oh, yeah. sadness, right? Because it that memory that they create together is a mix of blue and yellow. What I don't like about the design is if that's where this is going, don't have her be blue at the beginning too. That's crazy. Like maybe her hair should turn blue, but I feel like she should start uh, all yellow. Well, you know, I don't know. I like, I think joy might be the most complex emotion. You know, joy comes from understanding the valleys, right? And so they they may be more intertwined than they even realize. And I think that that's what she realizes. And she's trying to keep her hands off the balls, but she realized like, no, maybe the perfect thing is the blend, which would then make me want sadness to have something that is a part of joy too, because sadness is touching everything, which makes sense. But in the world of the movie, that would mean that sadness would be at the control panel more, right? It's like, well, yeah, because it looks like sadness has remembered the memories through the sad lens. That's part of the story that I like where they're both looking at the same memory of like a day with Riley and her hockey team, but sadness remembers the sad and joy only insists on remembering the joy of it. Well, then maybe let's talk about this idea that they both have their own set of marbles. If if you're sadness and you have your set of marbles and I'm joy and I have my set of marbles and I'm always dropping in my marble to remember this event, but never dropping in the other one, it's like, I'm only looking at it one way. Like, I feel like that that's more of a struggle. Like, it seems to me like there's something so weird about and vindictive about sadness just touching all the marbles and being like, now it's well, sad. I don't know now why it's sad. I did it. Oh. Yeah, it's, it, like, yeah. It's like, is that saying that like sadness, you don't know why you're sad, you just are and everything you look at becomes sad. It's tricky. Again, it's tricky to break it all well, yeah. down. I, sometimes I wonder if they even know or if we're just supposed to feel like we're obligated to figure it out or I don't know even here like I found an interview where they're talking about how hard it was to make Joy even an interesting character sometimes they had a version of Joy that people just thought was like horribly unlikable we didn't have an arc for her we just knew that she kind of represented childhood to Riley we thought maybe a key to her is that she's not in it for herself she's in it for the kid and she wants her kid to be happy and so it's all about Riley and we tried that from the very beginning but even there It just became sort of one note, kind of monotonous and not believable. So we said, all right, well, what if there's a twist on that? What if we make her so fervent in her uh, passion, she's actually sort of nasty to other people? But yeah, even with all that said, I think maybe this was just almost too complicated an idea to pull off and that they pulled it off as well as they did as a tribute. But I can't say they actually did pull it off. Pixar is really interesting because they take very complex ideas about feeling ways that movies don't often talk about, right? They, they have I outlived my usefulness? Am I, do I have anything to offer anymore? You know, what's my place in this world? How am I supposed to feel? Like these, these large ideas and they make them really simple, but in part in doing that. They don't get overly caught up 
and trying to like hold on to the world in a way. Like if you try to break down cars, good luck, right? You'll, you'll run into a wall. But if you just sit back and understand what cars are trying to tell you, it kind of works out great. I mean, some of it is stunty. When they turn into abstract images, it's a, it's a, it's a stunt. It's a joke. It's, a, it's a joke. It's a stunt. Yeah. And it's part, I think that there are part of these movies that are based in the true feels, the emotional beats, the emotional turns. What makes these movies so good is complicated ideas with a fun, big, beautiful world, even though you don't consider it beautiful. I think the world here is pretty beautiful. Uh, it may not be as expansive as others, but I do think it tells a fun story that you can latch into. Well, did you know that it shares one actor in common with Labyrinth? There's one person who ties these two worlds together. I don't know who that is. Oh, well, here, let me play this clip for you. Wait, it says my hat? My hat, it says. That's what I wrote in my hat. What are you talking about? That, you've got my hat Okay, on. but it's my hat. Hey, you! Oh, you caught us. <laughs> Get back in there. No escaping. The voice of one of those cops, the cop called Dave, is played by Frank Oz. The other cop is what? called Frank, and it's played by a guy named Dave Gills. So they inverted names just to mess with people, but Frank Oz is voicing the one who's uh, taller with a mustache. And of course, Frank Oz... We know him from Labyrinth as well, where he was the voice of the wise man. You know, the guy with the bird on his head? This one. Oh, yeah. It seems like we're not getting anywhere when in fact... We are. We are. I'm certainly not getting anywhere at the moment. Ha! Join the club! So I like that. In two worlds, inside a girl's mind, you're just always going to find Frank Oz. Almost every critic adored this movie. I had to search very hard for critics who didn't like it. The Irish Times got a little snarky. They said, Disney has finally laid its great big golden egg of the summer. A shiny, breathless, peerlessly sentimental and twee blockbuster set in the pink marshmallow wastelands of an 11-year-old girl's head. She just hates everything. The people, girls at school, the dogs, even the pizza. Blurg. And so begins another animated ode to spoiled Western children. I tried to control my own hatred, but it strains, it scuffles, it barely keeps the ball in the air. Like a desperate aging clown, the studio that made Toy Story Monsters, Inc. and Wally seems painfully aware that it must come up with something ever more dazzling. You know, I'm thinking about all these movies. I'm like, for the most part, all of them really just kind of fizzle a little bit at the end. Like, they all kind of have this, like, really great start. And they start to, like, unravel to a point. Yeah. Like, you know. Um, That's what happens when you're high concept, right? Like, how do you yeah. keep something high concept high? In keeping the story going, sometimes you hit these walls where you're like, oh, I got to this other place just because it needs to be a movie. It needs to be 90 minutes, right? But there are the, like, I leave fulfilled, but maybe along the way, I, I may have checked in and out a little bit in a different way. I don't know. I love this movie. If I'm looking at it in a very critical way, I can give you my my own two cents on it. And I, and I feel like I love every Pixar movie. When taken as a whole, there are highs and lows, good and bad feelings, and maybe that's maybe that's indicative of a of a great film too. Like you know, like that you remember the sum total of its parts, uh, not just all the little the bibs and bobs on the way. Yeah, fair enough. And you know what? When all else fails, we can always just listen to this audio clip of a giant stack of dreamboats on top of each other's shoulders moaning. I had to do that. That part always makes me laugh. And I also, it. I want to ask you before you wrap up, what is the triple dent in your head? 
right now if it shifts? What is the thing in your mm. head right now that is just rattling away because I will just come clean about mine? For some reason, I've had a song from the Suicide Squad soundtrack in my head for like three days. The Skrillex one, the purple Lamborghini. Oh, wow. Purple, purple okay. Lamborghini. Do you know the one where he's like just randomly going blop, 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 and then he screams, Rose. <laughs> I've like, never heard that. A marvelous track. Excellent to box too. Lately, it's been so weird. I've had this circle of life in my head. Oh, God. Um, because my kids and I were just singing it in the car, and now it's become this thing that we just keep on yelling at each other. And and I found myself humming it the other day when I was walking around without my kids. And I was like, what am I humming? The circle of life? All right. <laughs> and it's like it started as a bit, and now it's in there for real. I think you need to teach them about the purple Lamborghini song. I'll send it to you. All right, I will. Okay, good. Well, in this conversation of highs and lows and ups and downs, you know, one of the things that we might have a feeling about is losing. And that's something that happened to you, Amy. You lost your bet with me (laughs) uh, about the Academy Awards. And because of that, I was allowed to do whatever I wanted for an episode. And what I wanted to do... I Loser Island in my brain, thanks to you. Loser Island's up there. It's a a beautiful island, a beautiful (laughs) island. Um, And... I wanted to do something special. I was really blown away by uh, the third season of Picard, which was a kind of reintroduction to Star Trek Next Generation. They had been doing the show for two years before it, and it wasn't clicking. And then Terry Metalis, who was a co-showrunner in season two, basically tossed out what was there and started fresh and made this amazing Star Trek miniseries that became like a 10 episode movie. And it got me thinking, is there any Star Trek movie that would be worthy for space? I mean, obviously they're in space. Could we send a Star Trek? We've talked about Star Wars. We've never talked about Star Trek. So I wanted to pull on our two good friends, Tani Newsom and Paul F. Tompkins, who have hosted their own Star Trek podcast, The Pod Directive, and bring them in to have a conversation with you about the best Star Trek movie. Now, when we were on the pod directive, we talked about the Wrath of Khan, which you can listen to wherever you get your podcast. So we decided let's maybe talk about Next Generation, because I've been so obsessed with Picard, and talk about a little Star Trek film called First Contact. Take a listen to the trailer. In his nightmares, he can see them. In his mind, he can hear them. Locutus. In his soul, he can feel them. I've just received a report from Deep Space Five. Long-range sensors have picked up. Yes, I know. The Vorg. Set a course for Earth. Maximum warp. Now, in Earth's darkest hour, he must fight them again. Captain. Earth. Life signs? Population approximately 9 billion. All Borg. How? Time travel. They went back and assimilated Earth. Changed history. I must follow them back. Repair whatever damage they've done. But this time, they must travel to the past. April 4th, 2063. To save our future. You're all astronauts on some kind of Star Trek. So the meat of our conversation will be about First Contact, but we will also just be talking about Star Trek and how that lives in the canon of 
films, seminal films, films that should be remembered. Uh, I'm so excited to have them in here, Amy, and I'm so excited you're letting me pull a fast one and get a Star Trek movie on this show. (laughs) I think you are using your powers wisely. Well, Amy, until next week, but a big thank you to our producer, Josh Richmond, our associate producer, Jessica Cisneros, our engineer, Casey Holford, our EPs, Cody Fisher and Colin Anderson, our MVP, Molly Reynolds, our theme song by Michael Cassidy, our fan art by Kim Troxall. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, rate, review, and follow us on Apple and also on Amazon. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and you can talk about all these movies on the Paul Shear Discord. Just go to discord.gg slash Paul Shear. Unspooled t-shirts are available at tpublic.com slash unspooled, but you can also get your very own deck of unspooled playing cards, which are absolutely gorgeous, all designed by Kim Troxell at podswag.com. Just find the unspooled show and you'll see it right there. You can hear past episodes of the show and bonuses like screen test on Stitcher Premium and for the official API, that's the Paul and Amy Institute list of our favorite films that we've ever done from the show, you can head on over to unspooledpod.com. Hooray! Nordstrom Rack's got sweet deals on everything Easter, which is Sunday, March 31st. Get to Nordstrom Rack now and save on Kate Spade, New York, Two-Faced, Steve Madden, Calvin Klein, and more from just $30. Score great brands and great prices on Easter looks for everyone, plus spring decor, gifts, and all kinds of deliciousness. Rack up the deals today at your Nordstrom Rack store. What will you find? Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply.